Welcome to Monster Porn, Weird Fiction and Horror Podcast. The podcast that wonders if people mark their graves with stones. When stones die, do they mark their graves with people? Today's story is Why Are You Crying, Jack? The Midnight Preacher, Part 1, by Matt Cummins. Happy Monday, Monster Baiters. Just want to take a minute and thank you all for your continued support, especially the Apple Podcast reviews. We're grateful to all of our Monster Baiters who keep us going and growing. But I'm not going to ramble on. You don't tune into this show to just listen to our voices. No, I believe they tune in for our good looks, Matt. Yeah, where'd you come from? <laughs> well, uh, do we have any new reviews? We've got one from Sarah Nay on Apple Podcasts who says, Definitely different. I found this podcast a couple months ago. At first I was like, what the hell did I just listen to? Now that I understand the format and the way things go, I love it. It's so much fun and I love the way they have a story within a story kind of thing going on. I would definitely recommend this podcast, if you love horror like I do. Thank you, Serenay. That is an awesome review. That is an awesome review. I love that she started out by saying, what in the hell did I just listen to? (laughs) Yes, that is roughly what we're going for here. If it makes you feel any better, we often ask ourselves, what the hell did we just record? That is no joke. We've actually said those words several times. And on that note, here is your regular dose of what the hell did I just listen to? Enjoy the show. How in the hell did you convince me to go to 5 a.m. yoga class? Well, I heard that there will be single women rehearsing their flexibility and posture in a ritualistic fashion loosely derived from the sacred post-Vedic Indian arcana of ascetic shramanas. Oh, man, what in the heck is Patrick going to do in there? What do you mean? I can't wait to give yoga a try. You're a head in a jar. What? Head in a jar? Is that... Is that a weird yoga move like downward dog or proud pigeon or... or bigoted beaver? Hmm. The gym is dead at 5 a.m. Maybe I'll just go hit the weights while you do your yoga. I can, uh, I don't know, set Patrick on the treadmill and just, like, let him roll for a while. No, Matt. I need my wingmen. But since no winged humanoids are returning my calls, I need you two for support. Ah, here's the room. We're early. It looks like the previous class is just finishing up. Hell yeah, it does. What is this? It looks like an 80s-style aerobics class. All these chicks in tights and sweatpants. Seriously, there's nothing hotter. Oh, yeah, this looks fun. Do you hear something? It's like somebody left a radio on without tuning it into a station. Yeah, they're working out to that boombox on the stool over there. It's just playing static. Hmm. Have you checked out the teacher yet? I can't see her through the window. She's just out of my eye's reach. And look at all these chicks trying to get skinny, and they're already super fit. Actually, some of them are looking a little too skinny. Is it just me, or are they getting skinnier by the second? They're starting to look like like mummies. Class is letting out. Let's step out of the way of the door. Are you seeing this? God, 
They all look like desiccated corpses. Oh, look. Here comes the teacher out of the weight loss class. Slenderman? The internet is a psychopath's wet dream, police chief Hank Clements thought as he looked down at the fly-covered corpse. They scattered in a swarm at the sound of the deputy retching, and then finally puking a thick stream of mucus behind a log. Not on the crime scene, Thomas, the chief said. Deputy Thomas Pendergast put his thumb up in the air, and then stumbled off into the trees, whimpering as he went. You mind, chief? A man said, gesturing forward with his Nikon camera. Yeah, yeah, said the chief, not taking his eyes from the body. Kurt, the crime scene photographer, clicked a few snapshots of the body and then looked again at the chief. He'd never seen a man look so grave and so angry. Frankly, Kurt thought that if any wildlife came calling to the smell of the rot, one look at the chief would turn it around or kill it in its tracks. A car rolled up onto the scene. Ah, oh, Christ, chief said. A man with parted blonde hair and glasses stepped out of the blue sedan. Morning, chief. The man said, stepping out with his cell phone in his hands. Jordy, the chief said. Too soon for the press. If this were a normal case, chief, I'd agree, but... But nothing, Jordy, the chief said. People already know. They've already seen it. Hell, it was getting passed around Cross Creek upcycle, Jordy said, and then cowered a little under the chief's stare. He didn't think the chief could look any more pissed than he did but now he could see the mercury boiling at the tip of the chief's thermometer and decided in futility to try to calm him. Admin removed it, he said quietly. Jordy knew that the chief had seen the first post online, but someone had screenshot the photo and reposted it and had been spreading it all morning. The chief stared at him. Jordy waited for an explosion that never came. But that was the thing with the chief. He never really lost his cool. Considering the photos of the scene that they were looking at had been passed around online at a local classified page, he thought he could see the storm building inside the chief. The chief was, well, protective of his small town. Yeah, that was one way to put it, Jordy thought, and a memory flashed through his mind. He and the chief went out to shoot pool, and a drifter who'd been seen harassing some underage girls walked into the bar. He didn't know that a man could actually be picked up with one hand by the throat and then thrown over the hood of a car, but the chief had done it without breaking a sweat. The crazy part was, as the chief scrubbed the parking lot with a man's face, he was never out of control. It was as if he were taking care of some routine business. Seeing that protective side of the chief and his own complicity in the moment made him shiver with guilt. Being the local news reporter, he was supposed to be at odds with law enforcement or wary of them. But at that moment, more than anything, he felt pride. A lot of goddamn pride. All right, Chief said. Stay out of the way. Remember, Jordy, this is someone's child, and it may be someone you know. So before you put anything on paper, you think about what you'd be willing to say to the mother or father of this child. You're no coward. Don't start acting like one now. Jordy nodded and stayed at his car. He'd only wanted to interview the Chief. He didn't want to see the body. He'd been curious but when the breeze had died, he caught a little whiff of something that he had no interest in smelling again. It brought back a childhood memory to him, fishing on the banks of a river and coming up on a large dead carp. He flipped it with a stick, 
and had seen the maggots wriggling inside its empty eye sockets. And then the wind changed, and a putrid, acidic smell hit him, and he turned and ran as far as he could until he was either going to puke or pass out. Neither happened, but he stayed away from dead things as a rule after that. Compared to this, the fish had just been a fart on the breeze. Chief Clemens went back to the body and looked at it. The skin had turned a grayish color, and maggots were writhing from a wound in the arm. It was a girl, or a woman perhaps, roughly five feet seven inches tall with black hair. Half of the head had been removed, and by the looks of it, it had been done by a wild animal. What a wild animal hadn't done was twist the gray cable around her neck. The cable was like that of a dog's restraint, one that slipped around another cable to allow the animal more distance to roam, like a zipline. This cable had been affixed to a handle which had been used to twist the cable. It looked as though the body had been dragged away, which meant that whoever had done this had been big enough to drag a corpse. There could be more than one perpetrator, he supposed, but he didn't think so. The drag marks weren't obvious, but you could still see them. And two men would have carried the body, not dragged it. She'd been brought out here a few miles east of town, dumped on the side of the road, and then dragged into the ditch. Unfortunately, the crime scene had been washed by the rain. All the footprints were gone. The chief wondered whether the killer had counted on this. It looks like those were welded, Deputy Pendergast said, his voice hoarse. He wiped out his mouth and rubbed his throat. Yeah, the chief said. You all right? No, no, but I can still do my job, Pendergast answered. Chief, there's only one welder in town, he said. Professionally, maybe, but there's got to be as many as 50 amateurs, if not over 100. Anybody who's been through the local welding program at the high school could weld these, the chief said. Do you weld? Pendergast asked, and the chief shook his head. And Pendergast said, Well, I did go through that program, and I'll be the first to admit I was way more interested in Cindy Lawrence's thong whenever she bent over to dig something out of the scrap bin. But I couldn't begin to weld anything that well. Do you see how clean that is? I'm an amateur. That's professional, or a cousin to it. That's pretty good information, deputy, the chief said. Yeah, and there's one more thing, the deputy said. I used to live in the trailer across from Benson's gate. I know, the chief said. I had to arrest your roommate three times. Yeah, yeah, and you gave me my first four MIPs, Pendergast chuckled, the color returning to his face. I even remember the man gets whatever he puts in speech. Anyways, Benson kept a couple of dogs on a chain like that. I'm pretty sure that's a handle from some tongs from his shop, too. Benson, the chief said. I was at his daughter's baptism the last week I ever went to the Peaks. He donates to Big Brother's Big Sisters every year. Yeah, but you know he hasn't been the same ever since Martha passed. Thomas, the longer you do this job, the more you'll realize it hardly matters. Anyone is capable. Let's go. Hey, Chief, Pendergast said. Yeah? The Chief answered. Online, people were saying, Is this... Do you think this is Susie? The Chief didn't answer. He didn't have to. As they walked back to the car, Pendergast wiped his eyes. Lit with a splash of orange from the evening sun, the steeple of the church stood as a beacon to the valley below and the true believers followed the summons up the old dirt road. They came in pickups with rusting bumpers 
and dented side panels. They came in economy cars and minivans. Some even came in shining, fresh-off-the-line SUVs. It was revival season for the Pentecostal churches in the Midwest, and on a Thursday night, the Peaks was the place to be. Looks like a good turnout tonight, Maydeen said to Slim Burns, a tall, thin man with dark hair combed to a neat part. His lips were downturned in a pout that Maydeen recognized as a face he only made when money was tight or the church council was pushing back against something he had said or done. She'd grown to care about the man. If she allowed herself to think about it, with all of the cards on the table, the hand she'd be left to play would fall between lust and love. But you couldn't think that way when you were a married, godly woman. What's the matter? She asked, but she knew it was money. Or hoped it was. She'd seen the bottom line of the church's ledger, and it didn't look good. It was also Susie, that whoring little cunt. Slim had been real fond of Susie before she'd gone missing, and Maydeen was, God forgive her, glad that the flirtatious, lusty little bitch had disappeared. She was only going to lead Slim astray and break his heart. The thought of Slim and Susie sharing a long embrace, with Susie in one of those tight little short skirts she wore, crossed Maydeen's mind. Her hands instinctively clenched into fists so hard that she damn near broke the skin with her nails. Nothing is wrong, he said and turned away from a curtain that sat on the stage behind the pulpit. A lamp was the only light currently on in the stage area, and Maydeen thought it gave him a remarkable look, handsome but dangerous. In this light, he looked as though his face had been carved out of stone, and she felt a warm tingling near her navel spreading downward as she looked at him a sensation she would pray about later. There was another striking quality that he had in this light. With his height and the length of the shadows cast by some of the stage props from the Easter special, Pastor Burns sort of faded from sight, as though he were just another one of the strong shadows being cast from the lamplight. They'll do good when the plates get passed, Maidine said, and for a moment an odd look flashed across his face. Maydeen was sure it had to be the light, because the look would be something beyond anger if she had seen what she thought she had seen. But no, it couldn't have been. He couldn't hate her. He could never, would never, could he? She thought about this, and for whatever strange and devilish reason, Satan has no sense of logic when it comes to the carnal, she always thought. She found the warmth in her belly spread to a tingling in her panties. She'd deal with this feeling later with prayer and penance. And, if that didn't work, she'd try her husband, or the vibrator she kept for such emergencies. Of course, she was being ridiculous. All of her fears faded when he smiled at her and said, The Lord is our shepherd, and we shall not want. As he said this, his eyes went somewhere else, as though he detested every word that was coming out of his mouth. But then he looked up and asked, Is Alan back yet? Maydeen shook her head. The evangelist who was coming through tonight was a man out of Idaho named Alan Zephyr, who didn't want any titles. He went by Alan, no minister, pastor, or preacher. Let the Lord have his titles. I'm just a servant, Alan had said with pride when Maydeen first met him. He was short and thin with a bald head that made him look something like a half-used-up pencil. He also had a penchant for dramatics. Where Pastor Burns was steady and academic, Alan was a conduit for the Holy Ghost. He danced, shouted, Praise Jesus! and spontaneously broke into speaking tongues. With the offering plate coming back light due to a local mine shutting down months ago, 
A little Holy Spirit and hallelujah was just what the coffers needed. Slim looked out and saw Alan come in and sit down in the back row. The worship service ended and Slim stepped out in front of the people. He smiled handsomely, and in the moment's silence, many women resisted the urge to swoon. Hallelujah and praise his holy name. Thanks, Wendy and Cordell, again for the blessed worship that we experience every week. The Spirit comes with every service. Praise Jesus. Tonight is the third night of revival, and I can feel the Lord working miracles. Amen. Amen, the congregation repeated, and it was strong for the first amen. Things might turn out tonight, he thought, but the thought tasted a bit like snake oil. Let us pray before Alan blesses us with his message tonight. Let us bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our ability to gather here today and commune in your holy word. Bless those who were unable to make it here for whatever circumstance or sickness. We ask that you, through your endless power, reach out to the hearts of those in our community unable to make it here tonight and bring them to us so that we may share your word and your love so that their cup may overflow with your blessings. Bless Alan as he shares his message, so that it may be your wisdom passing through his lips. We thank you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen, the crowd repeated with enthusiasm. I'd now like to invite Alan to the stage and take a moment to remind you that when we pass the tithe and offerings tonight, that half of what we make will go to help Alan continue his work of spreading God's word. Now that that little housekeeping is taken care of, I'd like to invite him up to the stage. Alan stood and came to the pulpit, and Slim went and sat in the front row. He looked at Maydeen through the curtain, smiled, and winked at her. She blushed in the darkness. Benson's property reminded Deputy Pendergast of a junkyard and not because of the smell or that it was trashed, but from the odd assortment of things that other people would consider trash that were organized in piles all over the property. A pile of old, rusted bike parts lay in one spot, and in another he saw a collection of front bumpers. Most of them had been restored to their original stainless shine, but a few that were leaning up against the vertical red metal siding of the old Quonset Hut shop building were in need of repair. Pendergast saw through an open door of the shop building as they made their way through the aisles amidst the junk that there was a Corvette, a stingray of some early year by the look of it, up on blocks with the engine pulled. It looked as though the paint had just been redone and that Benson was working on the frame beneath the hood. Look at that, Pendergast said to the chief, knowing the chief liked old cars. The chief nodded and turned down the corners of his mouth in a sort of frown of approval. Just then the dogs began to bark. A Rottweiler and a Doberman came around the corner at full speed. Pendergast didn't know whether to go for his service weapon or his taser, but the last second he remembered the pepper spray. Pendergast pulled up the spray, stumbled backwards over a pipe that he hadn't noticed stepping over. The chief caught him by the elbow and shouted at the dogs, which didn't seem to slow them down at all. Brutus! Bono! A rough voice barked. The two dogs stopped in their tracks and sat down. An older man with military tattoos showing... On his sleeveless arm stood on the front porch of the small manufactured home. Chief, Thomas, the man said, what can I help you with? <sighs> A change of pants, Pendergast mumbled, and the chief said, just have to ask a couple of questions. I figured you'd be coming by, 
Benson said, looking at them plainly, his suntanned face calm but grave. Come on in. The two stepped into the home. It was neat and homey, if not a little wanting for decor. Pendergast suspected that since Martha's passing, some of her belongings had been taken down, and he would be right. Benson had gotten rid of nearly everything his wife had decorated with. He'd put it in boxes and donated it to the local foster parent exchange organization. He sat them down on an old weathered sofa, and then he took the seat across from them, giving them a stern look as he sipped his coffee. Pendergast needed someone to say something. He could hardly sit still, but he knew the chief was letting Benson set the pace. Well, it was mine, he said. The cable and the, the handles. You've seen the pictures, then? Chief asked, sipping the coffee out of the old camping mug Benson had given them. It's good coffee, thanks, he said. Couldn't miss it. Now I can't unsee it. I got online to see if anyone had bid on the, the post that I'd put up for my Ford Bronco on Upcycle, and there she was, the, the poor Williams girl. We haven't confirmed that it's Susie yet, the chief said. I don't need any confirmation. You know, did you see that metal ring on her left finger, the one with the rose? Yes, the chief said. I made that for her years ago. She helped Martha down at the store, and Martha asked me to do something nice for the girl. She could have sold it, the chief said. Ah, the hell she did. I saw her wearing it last week, and then there's the scar on her forearm, Benson said, and the chief nodded, as though he already knew it. Pendergast felt his stomach turn. He dated Susie Williams for a few months. She was only 21, and he was seven years older than her, but in a town like Cross Creek, that was no big deal. They hadn't even been exclusive, but they'd remained friends. And then after that, on quiet evenings by himself in the small hours, he'd find himself thinking of Susie and how it would feel to fall asleep beside her. Now, he would never know. Do you know how the cables and the handles ended up being wrapped around Susie's neck? The chief asked. Benson looked at the chief and shook his head slowly. No, I don't. About a week ago, let me think. It was, uh, was last Monday? Yeah two days before I started hearing that Susie had turned up missing. I went into my shop and I found that the cables that I tethered the dogs to when I'm coming in and out of my gate was in the shop and it had been cut with a torch. I didn't notice the handles were missing, but it looked like my welder had been used. It was put away, well, you know, sloppily. Who would have had access to your shop? Well, just me and my boys, Vincent said. But neither of them did this. They're handy around the place, getting handier each year, but they're both under 12, and I haven't let them handle the welder much. No, whoever did this knew their way around the shop, and that makes three people who would have known, one of which no longer lives here, and the other who works at the bank most days. Who's the third? The chief asked. But it wasn't Benson who answered. Pendergast said, Jack Florence. And Benson nodded. Jack had worked in Benson's shop when Pendergast had lived across the street. Now Jack was roughnecking in the oil field. Chief, Benson said, a man knows his shop. It has a certain feel, almost like a scent. An unorganized man's workplace can look like a shit pile. But that man will know where each and every tool is and why it is there. An organized man has an even better understanding because it's simpler and systematic. Whenever you bring someone into your workplace, it changes the smell of things. Much like 
trying out living with someone new. That odor is specific to that person. Jack was a good kid, a little hot under the collar and a little restless, but he was a good kid. Chief walking into the shop that day, it just felt like it did when Jack worked there, right down to the half-assed way he put away my welder. Hell, he didn't even sweep up, and when he worked for me, he never swept up. I had no idea why Jack would be in my shop, so I just assumed that one of my boys had been screwing around. But then when I saw the cables, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't my boys. It might not have been Jack either, but, well, there it is. Back out in the chief's pickup, Pendergast asked, What's next, chief? Just follow the trail, chief said as he put his car into reverse and they backed down the drive. The service at the peaks was wrapping up, and Alan had done it. The crowd had devoured every word. Cheryl Lee had ran up and down the aisles until her pantyhose tore. Men and women danced and shouted. Three people had been taken with the spirit and fainted on the altar. Ricky Scott had gone into convulsions before collapsing face forward over the pew in a sweaty, quivering heap. And the offering plates were so full that they had to pass a third and then a fourth plate. Maiden collected the plates and added up the money's total. Alan's jumping and jiving had brought in just shy of $4,500. So far this week, there hadn't been a night where more than 600 bucks had been put into the plate. And even without the revival, a good week usually only brought in two or 3000 For a congregation of over 200 people who were all supposed to be tithing 10%, it was pathetic. Tithing was supposed to be the bare minimum. People were supposed to give offerings on top of all of that. The problem was, they were barely above the average week, and the church had fallen behind on the mortgage. May Dean had offered to pay, but Slim had said that Gerald, her husband, would take her away from him if she gave him that kind of money. It was one of those little things that he said that made her feel like maybe, just maybe, if she hung around long enough. Slim walked in with Alan, who looked to be on whatever cloud floats above cloud nine. She had seen this before with other evangelists, and it reminded her of a guy she had dated at the junior college she had gone to that had been the lead singer of a band. There was a high to stepping off the stage after a really good show. Slim had it, but in smaller doses. Slim never seemed too up or too down. But he did seem different sometimes, especially after sermons when people would allow him to lead them to Christ through prayer of salvation. When this happened, he seemed to wear a permanent grin afterwards. But it wasn't his smile, it was his eyes. There was something alive in them that gave her more than the normal twang in her panties. It made her downright wet. And what did that say about her? If she weren't so busy lusting after her minister, she may have thought that Slim's expression was similar to a feral dog panting happily after a kill. Pendergast had his gun out as he stood to the side of the front door of the single-wide trailer. He'd only drawn his piece twice before and had never done it in broad daylight. He felt naked standing here in view of several other trailers holding his gun up by his right ear with his side to the door, ready to step and aim if necessary. I look like James Bond, he thought, and he had to catch the laugh in his throat. 
The idea of him being James Bond and going undercover as a podunk deputy raiding single-wide trailers made him grin. The chief had his revolver out. It was pointed at the ground. He stared right at Pendergast. Chief had intense blue ship captain's eyes, Pendergast thought. Eyes that after decades on the water had taken on the color and the power of the raging sea. He felt sorry for the criminal who had to look into those eyes. They'd knocked and shouted, but so far there had been no answer. Jack's car was parked on the patch of gravel that served as the trailer's driveway. The chief looked at Pendergast and nodded. He took his left hand off of his gun and then tried the doorknob. It turned. He slowly turned the handle and then pushed the door open. There was a small creak. The chief winced at this, but then raised a finger to his lips to tell Pendergast to be quiet. They went in. They found the trailer to be a little messy, but nicer than the rusted metal husk of the exterior advertised. Jack had put in new flooring and cabinets, but there were clothes on the floor and day-old food on the stove, something greenish and yellow that looked like a soup of some kind coagulating in the pot. The living room was empty, but on the coffee table next to the couch, there was a smoldering ashtray a bottle of Evan Williams, and a photo of Jack and Susie. The trailer was only 14 feet wide, and it was one of those single wides that had two master bedrooms, one on each end. The chief was motioning toward the back bedroom, though Pendergast didn't know why he thought of this as being the back as it actually faced the side of the property. The chief led them, revolver at the ready, into the back bedroom where someone was making muffled sounds. Chief opened the door and Pendergast could see over his shoulder that Jack was standing across the room, facing the corner. His whole body was shaking. Why are you crying, Jack? the chief asked. Jack didn't turn. He stood shirtless with his wavy, sun-bleached hair between his shoulder blades, covering the face of the eagle outline that was tattooed with its wings spread across his shoulder blades. He was tanned and muscular, and Pendergast was jealous. He, he said, Jack sobbed, his whole body shaking, he, he said that, that she would talk. Who would talk, the chief said, and Jack let out a small, exasperated chuckle that was terrifyingly sane. Who? Like you don't know. God, I didn't mean, oh, oh God. Jack made a sound not unlike the sounds Pendergast had heard a cat make in labor, a sort of strained mewling sound. I didn't, I didn't want to hurt her. Oh, God. God, I loved her, but she knew. She knew, and, and, and he knew, and he said that if I didn't... He trailed off. Who told you to do it? The chief said, and that is when Jack stopped crying and said, That's the thing. No one told me to do anything, Chief Clemens. But I, I've done some pretty bad things, Chief, and th those things were pretty much between me and God until Susie came along. Then he told me that that it was a bad thing that she knew and that I needed to make sure she was quiet. And one night when we were out, I decided to rough her up a little bit, and then she fought back. I mean, she really fought back, Jack explained, and Pendergast felt his finger tightening around the trigger. Acid filled his stomach, and the world seemed to turn on a hinge, a rusted and grinding hinge that made everything turn white hot. I was just going to scare her with the cables but then she she dug her nails into my eyes and i just i just sort of twisted it oh god i heard a crack and then 
He made that same whining, mewling sound again, and Pendergast leveled the gun at the back of his head. He wanted to send the man to hell with that sound on his lips, but the chief grabbed the barrel and slowly pushed it away. Who are you saying told you to keep her quiet? God? The chief asked. Yeah, something like that, Jack said. As he turned around, his face looked like it had been attacked by some sort of rabid small animal. It was covered in scratches and gouges, and his left eye was blood red and swollen. There was a scab where his lower eyelid should be, and it was a weeping white pus. The chief moved towards him swiftly, reaching towards the shotgun Jack had pressed beneath his own chin, but as quick as the chief was, he wasn't quick enough. No one would have been. Jack pulled the trigger, and Pendergast closed his eyes as the spray of hot blood, skull, and brains spattered across his face. Maydine dropped onto her knees and looked up at the man. He was handsome enough, better looking than her husband, but he was no slim burns. She reached forward and loosened his belt. She could already smell the musky smells of his sweat before she opened his fly. The preaching had made things, well, swampy down there. For Slim, she would have endured this. No, for a godly man like Slim, she would have relished the opportunity. But Alan Zephyr, for all of his antics, was just a stage performer. She wasn't doing this for him. She was doing this for the Peaks and Slim. And by extension, that means she was doing it for God. And she would give everything for the Lord. Amen. After a few minutes of her jaw aching despite the underwhelming size of the man, she decided that she'd rather get it over with than spend any more time trying. Maydine stood up, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand and turned around, giving him access to the back of her skirt. He didn't just lift it, he tore it free, and he pulled her panties to the side so hard it burned. A small moan of pain escaped her lips, and then she expected the penetration to come at any moment but she wasn't expecting it to be in that place. No, no, she tried to say, but his hand was on the back of her neck and forcing her down over one of the pews. No, no, not like, not like that. But it was too late. Alan Zephyr, in his ecstasy, was not going to be denied. No, no, she tried to shout. That is when she saw a tall, slender figure move in the shadows. She saw the flash of the bat swinging in the streetlights coming through the red and purple stained glass, and followed by a sound that reminded her of the sound of a pumpkin being smashed. She looked up at her savior and saw Pastor Slim Burns smiling down at her, that same look in his eyes. Are you okay, Maydeen? He asked as he reached out his hand towards her. Yes, she said, feeling horrified but then exhilarated. I'm sorry he tried to do that to you. I had not seen that coming, Slim said as he searched the man's pockets and pulled out the envelope that held the cash that Slim had just given him. Then he took the man's wallet and was happy to find another $1,200. Praise Jesus, Maydine said. To be continued in the next installment of The Midnight Preacher, due out before Halloween.
Matt, come on, yoga class is about to start. No, uh, seriously, I'm just going to go lift some weights. You go ahead and knock yourself out. No, wait, Matt. I, I need my wigman. Bloody tears of Zeus, here comes a young woman now. Her? It? Ugh. Oh god, it's your neighbor. The typical blob monster. <clears throat> uh, Matilda, good morning. How have you been? Oh, yeah, I've been well as well. Matt, you remember Matilda, yes? Matilda is the 5 a.m. yoga teacher. Mm, yeah, hi. Hmm. Who does the fucking hiring at this gym? I'm trying to get my mat. Matt? But, but I'm not moving! What's going on? Why can't I feel my legs? Oh, here, we're getting started. How, how am I supposed to do that pose? I don't even have a... I don't even have that appendage, do I? Improvise with what you got, Matt. Oh god, but not with that appendage. Have some modesty. I'm just trying. What the hell is this move called, anyways? I believe this is Infinite Motion Mobius Strip. What's that you're doing with your... You're like, how... How is your... How is your head talking to me from your armpit? Hey! Hey, guys! Guys! I think I'm yelling it! Oh, yeah. Okay. Is this it? I'm not sure I'm getting it. Can you... Could you show me? Oh, God. Matilda's helping Brett in a very... Eh, hands-on way? I don't really know if I'd call those hands. Ah, uh. The human body is not supposed to bend that way. Oh, God, she's touching his butt. He's just smiling in ecstasy. Oh, man, I'm uncomfortable. She's petting him. She's actually petting him. And he's purring like a big, creepy, bald cat. Ugh. Oh, what? what is that? Can you feel the love tonight just came on the radio? Jesus Christ. Gah. Oh, what is that abominable move they're doing? I bet that's called the Cursed Double Camel. Yeah, well, I'm about to do the Vomiting Wombat. Now, I think what they're doing is called uh, the Crossover Columbus. Yeah, why is that? Because she's crossed the deep blue sea and is probing the unexplored continent. Monster Point Podcast is a production of Warpbox Media. Today's story was Why Are You Crying, Jack? by Matt Cummins. Music was by Brett Norwood. I think I'm going to do yoga every single day. My body feels so light.
Namaste, Monster Baiters, Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn first, rouse yourself out of corpse pose, and second, review Monster Porn on Apple Podcasts. We love you. Love us. We feed on your love. We are love parasites, just like house cats. Be sure to shop the official Monster Porn store at monsterpornpodcast.com store to find Halloween presents for the family. But remember, Halloween is not all about the presents. Don't forget the true meaning of Halloween. Thank you, April Jane Davis, for the awesome Facebook recommendation, saying, This podcast always has me laughing on my way to and from work, which is awesome because who doesn't love getting weird looks by strangers while you're laughing to yourself? Plus, it's helped me discover the best phrase ever, waffles in glory, LOL. Thank you, April Jane Davis. That's it. Until the shark angels come, stay weird, and Godspeed, strange cowboy. Point Podcast is a production of Warbox Media. Today's story was Why Are You Crying, Jack? <laughs> By Matt Cummins. Okay, we probably need to do that one again. God damn it, phone. Click, 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 click. You hear that? That is radiation from my phone being picked up by the microphone. All I'm doing is having the screen on next to my microphone. What does that mean? Yeah, they're working out to that boombox on the stool over there. I read that kind of weird. <laughs> Your neighbor, the tentacle blob monster. I don't know how to deliver that line. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> <clears throat> <sighs> <laughs> and Matt just saw my O face. Sounds you never want to hear your friends make. Uh, don't be so sure, man. <laughs> but now he could see the mercular, mercury, 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 and his complicit, complicit, don't be a complicit sissy. Don't be a complicit God damn complicit <laughs> Compared to this, the fish had just been a fart on the breeze. Chief Clemens went back to the body and looked at it. The skin had turned a grayish color, and maggots were wriggling from like, goddamn it, because I added that part later, just before that with the maggots. Now it's like two lines in a row of maggots wriggling. Well, if they're maggots wiggling, you have to talk about the maggots wiggling. This is monster porn, man. That's right. <laughs> There's going to be maggots. There are going to be maggots. I'm going to say crawling, just to use a different word. Okay. Writhing? Writhing. One of the ones that often slipped around another cable to allow the animal more distance to room. To room, to roam. <laughs> I had my cursor over the A. <laughs> uh, when in room. When in room. And Maydean thought that it gave him a remark, a murmur, when he smiled at her and said, "How do I do his voice again?" <laughs> Alan stood. Oh, that was weird. There was like a little squeak that came out of the back of my mouth I heard after after stage. You shouldn't hide the mice in your mouth. That's what your butthole's for. <laughs> Richard Gere style. She'd seen this before with other evangelists, and it reminded her of the guy she had dated in junior college. Who? <laughs> what? <laughs> Where? Pendergast had his gun out as he stood to the side of the front door of the single wide trailer. Single wide trailer. It's country song. Woohoo! Give me a 
Acid filled his stomach, and the world seemed to turn on a hinge, a rusted and grinding hinge that made everything turn hot, white, white hot. <laughs> hot white. Can't like people be hot, Matt. <laughs> sounds like a porno from the 80s. That I made. $1,200. Praise Jesus, Maydean said. Elfine! To be continued. Uh, to be continued. <laughs> Whoops.